Hey folks, it's Jared. Today my guests are Matthew Carsonson and Garrett Chandler, a pair of U.S. Army majors. We're going to be talking Army over-the-shore logistics. This episode was edited and produced by Marie Williams. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters. Whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a Simsec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of our chapters and contact information on the website at simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out and get involved. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the Simsec Podcast Network, the Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a paw of Iron Brew Bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Aloha, shipmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guests today are Garrett Chandler and Matthew Carsonson. We'll be discussing their recent contribution to Modern War Institute. Lots to be desired, why the U.S. Army needs to invest in logistics over the shore. So, uh, Matthew, we'll start with you. Would you mind introducing yourselves to the listeners a little bit, please? Sure. Hi, team. My name is Matt Carsonson. Uh, I am an Army strategist, and uh, along with Garrett, I'm just finishing up my time at the School for Advanced Military Studies here at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. My next stop will be the U.S. Army Pacific at Fort Shafter, Hawaii. Thanks, Matt. And Matthew, how about you? Could you provide a little background for the listeners? Yeah, so I'm uh, Garrett Chandler. I'm an Army logistician. Uh, and like Matt said, we're just finishing up the School of Advanced Military Studies here. And uh, I'm headed to Fort Carson, 4th Infantry Division after this. Well, thank you both for joining us. As a reminder to listeners, all opinions expressed are our own and not representative of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. Um, Garrett, I'll start with you. Could you explain to the listeners what LOTS is? Yeah, so logistics over the shore um, is what uh, the acronym LOTS comes from. And doctrinally speaking, it's basically just moving logistics or any of your supplies, uh, not through a fixed port from the seat of the land. So if I'm just looking at uh, most of what people think about are Normandy with the Mulberry Harbors and just dropping stuff directly on the beach. <clears throat> and that's part of it, but it's not the only part of it. You can do it with um, with a port that's damaged. You can do directly over the shore from there uh, using cranes and different pier equipment. But, you know, it's, it's essentially one analogy. It's not a perfect analogy that I would use. Is It's a little different than um, when you're looking at helicopters and airplanes. An airplane needs an, a landing strip, and it has to have certain facilities on the ground, but a helicopter doesn't. Um, so that's kind of a way to compare the two if you're looking at that way. So when you talk about lots and what the Army actually has, could you explain some of the gear that the Army has? Because it wasn't clear to me until I had an Army logistician in my class at uh, the Command and Staff School at um, Marine Corps University, just all the, all the gear that the Army actually has to do lots. And there's a lot of it, and it is all waterborne. Yeah, so there's there's the ships that are included with it. So you have the landing craft, um, landing ships that you can use that can go directly up to the beach, drop their ramp, and stuff can drive off. Uh, then you also have floating piers, which allow you to take larger ships and download equipment off at sea uh, from a larger ship to a, a smaller ship, and then you can transport it from there. Um, it has floating cranes that you can download the equipment off um, if you can't do a roll-on and roll-off or a row-row ship. Um, all of those um, are part of logistics over the shore. And then you also have all the uh, staffing that goes with it. So you have harbor masters and you have um, the crews that are doing the engineer stuff. So the dive teams, all those things that are helping get set up. And then a lot of the coordination that takes place when you're just trying to set up a pier 
on the land. You have all the engineering that goes with it. So you have CVs and construction and that type of thing. And uh, where's where's the army keep all that gear? I mean, do you have bases stateside? I know there's. I know I've seen at least some of it over in Kuwait when I was pulling in a Kuwait Navy base. Yeah, so there'll be some uh, located the Seventh uh, Transportation Brigade Expeditionary. That's the active duty uh, transportation brigade that has the logistics over the shore capability. Then there's a reserve one as well, but they're based out of Port Eustace uh, over on the East Coast. And then you have various components that are uh, stashed away in the um, in the uh, rapid draws that you can do. So the uh, preposition stock. And they'll exercise them periodically during um, and, and a training exercise. So like, say, just a couple of months ago, uh, they did it out in the Pacific and they used the boats. So. Is the Army the only service that owns lots capabilities for DOD? Uh, they're not the only one that has all the capabilities, but they are the primary. So they are uh, a joint force commander will assign a logistics overshore commander, similar to the way that they would do an amphibious um, operations commander. Um, and their responsibility is for controlling everything moving from sea to land. Um, so it's one piece of the overall operation. Uh, but once you start, breaking that down into the smaller pieces it might be a, a small element that does it it might be a large element it all depends on the size of the operation but uh, when um, the army's looking at it you're really talking the surface distribution uh, surface deployment and distribution command from transcom um, and then they'll work with the theater sustainment command or the esc that is working for the expeditionary sustainment command that's working for that theater sustainment command um, and they'll do the coordination with that and then they'll take whatever capabilities they need and they'll execute the logistics over shore. So you gave a nice summary of this, and I'm hoping you can go into a little more detail on the podcast here. Um, how did the U.S. approach to lots change uh, as the U.S. went from Korea to Vietnam to the first Gulf War? So Korea, you're you're a few years removed from World War II, so you have this big advantage that you have a lot of stuff and you have a lot of expertise that's kind of built into the force. Um, and so if you look at um, the way that things happen from uh, World War II to Korea, there's not a lot of difference. Um, and so if I go all the way back to say World War I and the arrival of the expeditionary force in France, they had to arrive and then essentially build ports and build storage facilities and build distribution centers to be able to move their force across. And then you have a couple of decades go by and you don't have that capability or that expertise anymore. So World War II into Korea, you don't have that same problem. I still have a bunch of leftover boats, a bunch of leftover ships, and we've started to form these uh, these storage locations where we keep all that equipment that isn't being used that you can just kind of pull out of the out of the storage and then start using it. Uh, but then in Korea, you don't have a unit that's designed to do that, and so they create this second logistics command um, where they uh, kind of patch together a, an ad hoc unit and they start doing logistics overshore into Korea. <clears throat> So you still have that mass capability. You're just doing it in an ad hoc fashion. But then you get towards Vietnam um, and you've started this transition away from this large force that you had after World War II and after Korea. And you're focusing more on a you're starting the transition of the professional force, not necessarily because you're still dealing with Vietnam, um, but you're starting to think that way. And you're using a local government to support your operations. Um, so I'm not. I'm not having to set up my own operations and bring everything in. I'm still using a host nation commercial port for most of the things. And so 
I have certain requirements, political requirements, economic requirements that that country needs that I have to account for as I'm doing those operations. But I already have those port facilities in place and I don't have to do much construction or support for it. I just maybe have to expand it a little bit. But then as I'm dealing with um, the adversary, the enemy, they're not really going to be able to influence it a whole lot. There might be some small actions against it, but it's not really going to be, they're not trying to destroy the whole port facility because in the end they wanted it. Um, and so you, you don't have the same threat against it and you go away from having a large amount of stuff and a lot of expertise to a more commercial uh, government to government approach. And it's just, it, that's kind of the transition that took place. And you see that a lot as you go to its desert storm uh, because we use a third country, Saudi Arabia, to really build up our forces and we're using the commercial ports there. There's some of the other stuff that takes place, but um, it's a political advantage to be able to use that third nation or some, a commercial port, uh, but it isn't always going to be available. So I think uh, one other piece we should appreciate, Jared, you posed the question about where the capabilities exist for logistics over the shore within the DOD. And we can talk about equipment. We can talk about uh, maintaining that stockpile. We can talk about transitioning it and obsolete and making it new. What we address a little bit uh, in, in our, our paper and we'd like to also bring up is it's not just about equipment. It's also about uh, the personnel, the users, as well as, as uh, those being supported. So while logistics commands may have opportunities to, to employ the equipment, to know uh, where the shortfalls exist and how to improve it, the flip side is who is uh, receiving the support from lots. And there's a, there's a bit of an issue with, uh, with ground units continuing the fight you know, into the land domain understanding their requirements in order for logistics over the shore to be successful. So there's, there's a symbiotic relationship and that's sometimes not touched on as robustly to make sure that everyone understands where the shortfalls and where the benefits of, of logistics over the shore lie. So I'm going to ask you a follow-up on that, if you don't mind. Um, when you say, you know, the units need to understand what their requirements are as they do this exercise, and I'm sort of using the Royal Bay there because we're all part of the Bay in this instance here. So as we're as we're we DoD are executing the exercises, does the exercise go from you know point A being somewhere out at sea all the way to point Y or whatever it is with a force on land receiving it, or are we conducting the exercises kind of in isolation? where the logisticians are operating at the pier, you know, at the pier, at the shore, wherever they're operating, they're practicing with their gear, but there's nobody on the giving or the receiving end, or one of those people on the giving or receiving end is missing. So uh, prior to my time here at the School for Advanced Military Studies, I was an observer controller at uh, Hohenfels training area in Germany. That's an opportunity. It's totally unrelated to logistics over the shore, but I'm, I'm getting there with training. Uh, as, as we look at how to conduct ground operations at echelon and at scale, Hohenfels was designed for a brigade combat team. So about four to 5,000 soldiers uh, fighting uh, uh, continuously over two weeks against a thinking enemy who was also a U.S. force. We integrated a lot of multinational partners. So now you start having challenges with uh, distributed logistics and, and sort, even though we have NATO stainags and NATO standardization, there are still inherent challenges. A lot of exercises like that are designed for the tactical successes, but it's also about looking for the operational choke points. It's about understanding the systems that make combat operations work, and it's about refining those systems. In that, we, we look specifically at logistics as well. It's not just about you know, kinetic actions. And when we look at logistics, we have a critical shortfall 
or, or really a tension between how do we exercise our systems and how do we supply this exercise? And they're, they're not necessarily supportive of each other, but they can't be considered independent either. What often happens, this is personal experience, is we overlook what capabilities are provided uh, exercise-wise for the, for the exercise, making sure the, ex- the, the logisticians are being exercised and instead consider the success of the exercise. I think that probably relates as well as we start looking at how to exercise logistics over the shore. There is an amount of making sure we can conduct this in combat operations and practicing, but at the same time, there's an, a need to make sure, A, it appears to be successful, B, we're supporting the larger exercise, and that, that's a real tension. Is it fair to describe logistics over the shore as something that you're really only going to use in an uncontested environment, or do you envision it as a contested capability as well? Because I'm thinking specifically about, you just talked about allies, but I think within the joint force too, you're going to look at supporting the Marine Corps logistically, for example, in the Pacific as part of what they're trying to do with EABO. There may be a, a request from inside the joint force to ask for some army support here with the, the joint logistics capabilities. Yeah, so I think it's important to understand that <clears throat> the possibility exists that it could be both. Um, it's easy to do, I say easy, but that's a relative term, to do logistics over the shore in a non-contested environment because I can base everything off of my timeline and whatever environmental factors are in play. But as I'm looking at a contested environment, I have to also understand that that's the element that everyone in the joint force is relying on to be able to get logistics over the shore or logistics through a fixed port into supporting an AO. Um, so as so I'm dealing with, say, Army support of, sister, of other services, so ASOS, um, that's a requirement that I have to be able to provide service to the other forces that are on the ground in, in an AO. I'm going to have to do that whether I have a fixed port or not. Um, and so if I'm in an environment in the Pacific, for instance, and I don't have the port facility to do it, I still have to figure out a way to do it. And air is an easy answer. Um, it's a good answer, but it's not the only answer that you have. And uh, as you start looking at how do I create different options and different opportunities for a commander to be able to make the operation successful, then I'm going to start looking at all these different creative ways I can do that. And one way that has really good throughput is through the sea onto the land. Um, and you just, you're going to have to do that whether you have a port facility or not. So the inverse relation with that is how do I protect my systems? Uh, if I know I'm, I'm protecting a fixed port, this is a known asset Garrett touched earlier on, on the Gulf War and, and knowing where the, the ports were in Saudi Arabia and what that meant for Saddam and, and targeting. And in the end, he didn't target the ports. If we provide another node with logistics over the shore, it's incumbent on the commander to also understand the protection requirements for it. And we have only finite resources. So if we already need to protect uh, vital nodes for logistic integration, it's, it's part of the calculus to know, hey, when do I start hitting critical mass and I'm unable to do these things anymore? That's what really inspires the contested, uncontested environment and knowing how much force to protection is required. Matt, you started the article describing the strike on the Russian Navy vessel Pearside at the port of Bergyansk. And uh, I'll, I'll timestamp this for the listener recording this on uh, May 21st. So if something you know, that is logistically important happens between now and when this goes to air, that's why we're not talking about it, because it's May 21st. But what, in your opinion, Matt, was the impact of that strike on Russian logistics efforts? 
Sure. So uh, again, bringing listeners back in time, uh, don't forget that the news cycle was blaring uh, nonstop about a 40 mile convoy. The 40 mile convoy stopped. It's time to target the 40 mile convoy. There was a little bit of hyperbole there, but we can assess that that was uh, a significant challenge with logistics, uh, both for those vehicles in the convoy, as well as what that allowed or, or didn't allow for throughput. We can assess that the Russians were most likely trying to generate more options to make sure that they could put supplies uh, from the rear to the front where they could best be employed. Uh, the Russians are much more eager to send items uh, via rail than, than the U.S. military is used to. We can do it. We, we don't uh, look at rail the same way the Russians do. But we know that was a, a pretty significant target for Ukrainian forces, either uh, on their way on a retreat or t- targeting forward. Uh, we can obviously see the roads were congested, so that allowed for, for some sea movement. Uh, the Sea of Azov provides a pretty good opportunity since the Russians maintain uh, the Kerch Strait and have for years that uh, if they could make it an internal water that allows for logistic, their version of logistics over the shore a little easier, in this case, to the port of Berdyansk. Because they didn't yet have uh, Mariupol, and, and like you say, with a, a, a stamp 21 May, they are saying that now, but I'm unsure if uh, how, how accurate that is, time will tell. Uh, I mean, that meant Mariupol was not an option. Uh, her son had just been seized and was still actively being contested by the Ukrainians. Not really an option. Berdyansk became really uh, the center point that allowed for the, the best logistics uh, for the southern access. If it's an uncontested environment, the Russians saw an opportunity to, to ease some of that requirement coming over land. The Ukrainians being able to apply effects against uh, the ship in harbor demonstrated that their logistics were going to continue to be uh, challenged, no matter the domain. And they're, they're, that's, a, that's a compounding effect uh, when, when war planners are continuing to think, how can I continue offensive maneuver uh, if I'm unable to supply by a consistent mode of transport? And so, like, kind of to what Matt's talking about, <clears throat> if I just look at the reach that the Russian force actually has to be able to go and continue to push uh, the front line forward. Um, I'm just looking at how far they have to drive on the road and the types of road that they're dealing with uh, and the environment around it. There's a certain limit to how far you can drive in a day. Uh, Even if you're driving all day, you still have to sleep at some point. You still have to download your stuff that's in your uh, vehicle. You still have to upload new stuff. Um, So there's this whole system that has to exist as you're driving around so i can kind of guess how far you're going to be able to drive it'll be a rough guess because of whatever factors but i can guess that so if i'm looking at forcing more equipment onto the roads then i'm going to be dealing with you know if i if i what do you call a highway that has a bunch of cars on it you call it a parking lot uh, because it's it's no longer moving because they're just stuck there Uh, and so as you start uh, filling that road with trucks, you cause problems there. And how do I do that? Well, I reduce the ability to do logistics through other means. So if I can't go through air because air is denied, then I'm going to reduce their ability to bring supplies to the air. If I turn off a port uh, by blocking it or preventing you from being able to do it operations in there uh, with without them being contested, then you're going to have to use roads or you're going to prefer to use roads. It's a natural flow. Uh, same thing with rail. So as you start looking at the different capabilities they have, the reason they want to open that is because you're going to have a higher throughput. Um, you know, it's, it's May 21st, so time will tell, but I still think even if you open up Mariupol, 
Um, you're still going to have a lot of damage and destruction on the port facilities there. So I don't know if it'll be as big of an impact as they were hoping it would be. Um, that's probably why they were looking at Berdyansk earlier. Um, but then as you look at any of the other port coastal facilities that they're really going to be able to use or potentially be able to use, you're talking Kherson, uh, Mikhailov, um, those have facilities, but they're all contested by the inability to do anything about Odessa. Um, so now you're really talking about just the ones that are on the coast al- uh, along the Sea of Azov there. Um, and so that's that's kind of, if, if you take that away, you can determine roughly how far they'll be able to reach unless they're using rail. And Matt, final question for you then. What lessons should the U.S. be taking as it considers its future lots capability? As future commands uh, across the services uh, look to increase uh, capabilities or refined systems. A lot of it is about creating opportunities that don't otherwise exist. LOTS provides commanders another option to increase logistic flow. But what we shouldn't do is look at LOTS and say, well, there's the answer and start diving in head deep. LOTS is yet another capability that generates options. Um, also, uh, as, as we watch the Russians and we see them struggle, I think we, we as the military should be attentive uh, to the fact that it's if we rely on a sole point, we are giving our adversaries, we are giving our enemies an opportunity to inhibit our capability with, with a, one decisive strike. Uh, so again, with, with those options being generated, we, we look at that both internally and how we can improve ourselves, and we also deny the enemy an opportunity to, to take one fatal blow instead of having to uh, consider their own options. But we, we, we do have to acknowledge that geographically, I mean, ocean is ocean, as, as, I, as I talk to a Navy crowd, you know, as, as a land guy, water's water. But that's not necessarily true. And we have to understand that we look at hydrography, we look at what uh, coastal lines look like, where harbors are available, where they're not, uh, that lots will probably not be a, a universal solution. Uh, that doesn't mean, therefore, that we need to generate different types for different oceans or different seas, and, and we, we can only have them uh, niche capabilities because you know, the celibacy is so deep and here's what the coastline looks like versus Africa and it's plateau. I, I think that's uh, not the point. I think the point is we understand that hey, this is a, a way to generate additional options. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank my guests, Garrett Chandler and Matthew Carsonson. Uh, Garrett, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Uh, the big thing I'm working on next, uh, trying to look at uh, how we can get to some of that training that we were talking about earlier to be able to incorporate logistics and planning for logistics and executing logistics uh, while also maintaining the, the training that we're doing for uh, the, the combat forces that are actually executing. Um, so how do we incorporate that better and how do we develop a force that understands how to execute that prior to us actually needing to do it? Um, Matt? Yeah, so I talked earlier about interoperability with, with NATO allies, uh, or really allies in general. I, I, I look at allied interoperability as a real force multiplier, and it can really help ease uh, some of the challenges that, that the U.S. Department of Defense sees across the board. That's, all, that's how we compete uh, you know, with our adversaries, and that's how we build uh, stronger, stronger alliances. I, I continue to delve into you know, where uh, lessons in NATO, from NATO, and some of the tension now uh, it, within the alliance, as they uh, look at the, the challenges being presented by Russia, what lessons can we take towards alliance building when we look more broadly? And with my next assignment in the Pacific, what does that mean 
for, for Pacific partners and allies and, and how can we generate more force uh, without having to devote solely U.S. elements uh, and, you know, and, and make sure we can compete more effectively. Well, thank you again both for joining us. To listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.